guys know that today we're in the third week of a series we've been calling Decisions. And if you are a guest with us and just joining us this morning, thanks so much for being here. You can probably tell just from the title of this series, what we're talking about is we're talking about the art of decision making. And what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying that, man, one thing every single one of us has in common is that all of us every single day make hundreds upon hundreds of decisions. And those decisions, of course, range from the very small, seemingly insignificant, even subconscious decisions, like how many times to hit snooze on the alarm clock, uh, to even the big, the monumental, the life-altering decisions like who to marry or where to work or what career to choose or when to retire and those type of things. So we said one of the things all of us have in common is that we make thousands and thousands in a lifetime, probably millions of decisions. And it probably goes without saying, but it's worth saying that our decisions really matter. Our decisions really, really, really matter. Because if you think about it, and you guys know this, our decisions compound over time, don't they? And as they compound, they, they, they set a trajectory for our life, and they ultimately lead to certain destinations. And so you may have, there's a whole old axiom you may have heard. It goes like this. It says that our life is a sum total of the decisions that we make. Now, our life is a sum total of the decisions that we make. Now, to some extent or another, that is true, isn't it? That as we make choices and as we make decisions, they lead us to certain places and they ultimately end in certain destinations. And so what we've been doing in the series then is we've been saying because decisions are so important, because decisions matter so much, how do we make great decisions? And of course, our approach in this series, as you can guess, is that we've been looking at the Bible. And we've been saying, what does the Bible teach us about how to make great decisions? How do we make decisions that honor God and that ultimately will lead us to the destinations that God desires for us. And so that's kind of what we've been doing in this series together. Like I said, this is the third week. And so just to kind of get our minds going on where we're going today, I thought maybe I'd start by asking you a question. So let me ask you just a quick question. This is obviously something I just want you to think about. Um, but, but for you, okay, all of us make decisions. How do you typically make decisions? I just want you to think about that for a second. Right? How do you typically make decisions? And here's what I mean by that. I'm convinced that inside of every single one of us, there's a natural proclivity and a natural inclination that all of us have to make decisions a certain way. That there's a place that we tend to make decisions from. You're like, I, I'm not really sure I understand what you mean. Okay, so let me just give you a couple different options here to think about. Here, here's a couple questions. First off, you don't need to raise your hand or anything. Are you a person that tends to make decisions with your head? So, so for example, some of you that are in this room, naturally, your, your natural inclination is that when you're making decisions, you always start up here. Right? You're the analytical researcher. You're the person that if you're, if you're like, let's say, for example, you're about to make a major purchase, you're the person that does what? Man, you search all the consumer reports. You do all of the research. You study every option, right? You, you read. You analyze. You probably put it in a Microsoft Excel document. You know, I don't know. And you're just that. You're an analytical researcher. Use your brain. Logical thinker. You're the kind of person that if you're looking to date someone or marry someone, you're going to make a list of pros and cons, right? You're going to be like, here's the pros. Here's the cons about this person. You're going to weigh it out. And that's going to kind of help you. And that's a logical kind of that rational, mind-heady person. So for you, my question is, do you tend to be a person who makes decisions with your head naturally? How about this one? Are you a person who naturally makes decisions with your heart? With your heart. Now, some of you might be a heart person. And what I mean by that, it doesn't mean that you don't think about things. You obviously think about things. It means that for you, how you feel about things really matters. 
And naturally, you want to make decisions based on how you feel. So for example, if you're making a big purchasing decision, it's not just does it make sense on paper, you're also asking does it feel right? Does the house that I'm going to buy, does it feel like home? The car that I'm going to buy, does it suit my personality, right? Does it feel like me, you know? Uh, if you're in a relationship, you're like, does it feel right? It might not even make sense on paper necessarily, but I just, you know, it doesn't feel. And for some of us, we naturally want to make decisions with our hearts. Some of us naturally with our head. Some of us naturally with our heart. How about this one? Are you a person that makes decisions with your hands? With your hands. What do we mean by that? Here's what we mean by that. Are you a person who naturally is a doer? You're like, I just want to, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I just want to do it, all right? Let's just, let's just start getting in motion, and we'll figure it out as we go, right? And some of you might have that personality where you're kind of like a driver, and you're like, look, I don't want to stop and analyze and think about my feelings and figure it out. I just want to go. Let's just go. We'll figure it out on the move. And for some of us, we naturally want to make decisions with our hands. So are you head? Are you heart? Are you hands? How about this one? Are you a person that makes decisions with your ears? With your ears. Here's what I mean by that. Are you a person who seeks advice on every decision you're going to make? You're just, you gather advice. You're like, before I make this decision, I got to talk to my mom. I'm going to call her. I'm going to hear what she has to say. And then after I talk to her, I'm going to talk to my friends and I'm going to hear what they have to say. And then I'm going to read advice columns. And then I'm going to check to see what Oprah has to say. And then I'm going to hop on this website. I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to look on Facebook, see what everyone is saying. And then I'm going to look on Pinterest. I don't even know why. I'm just going to. And I'm going <laughs> to gather all of this advice. And I'm going to figure out, are you a person that makes decisions? primarily with your ears. Here's the last one. Are you a person that makes decisions with your fists? (laughs) With your fists. What do I mean? You're like, I want to make decisions with my fists. Well, here's what I mean by that. I mean, are you a person who naturally, naturally, the decision you make, you want to make the decision that no one else is making? That, that you do things simply because everyone else is doing them. You're like, well, everyone else is doing that, so I'm not going to do that. You're like, everyone else likes that music, so I don't like that music. Right? I'm going to make decisions. I'm going to fight against the man. I'm going to buck against the system. I'm going to do things my own. I'm going to fight against the system. Like, oh, the, the sign says don't walk on the grass. I'm going to walk on the grass. And some, and some of us, honestly, let's just admit it. Some of us instinctually have that thing inside of us that's just like, forget it. I'm going I'm to make decisions with my fists. I'm going to show the world. And, and maybe that's you. Maybe you naturally have some kind of anti-conformist thing going on inside of you. Okay. So, so I think, just, just think about it for a minute. I think all of us naturally have an inclination of how we make decisions. So what I'm asking you is, what is yours? What is the place that you naturally want to make decisions out of? Is it your head? Is it your hands? Is it your, is it your heart? Is it your ears? Is it your fist? Maybe it's a combination of those things. Here's kind of a fun activity. When you go out to lunch with your family today, ask them. Say, hey, how do you think I make decisions? And just see what they have to say. It'd be kind of fun, right? I, I know some of you already know because I see you nudging each other, and so we kind of get that. But, uh, but listen, in the series, you might remember we've discovered so far We've discovered that according to the Bible, because remember, that's what we're doing. We're looking at what does the Bible say about making great decisions. We said that according to the Bible, the Bible teaches us that there is a place. There is a place that great decisions come from. There is. And the Bible tells us that the place of great decisions doesn't come from our head. It doesn't come from our heart. It doesn't come from our hands. It doesn't come from our ears. And it doesn't come from our fists. Not that it excludes those things. Not that those aren't valid things and important parts of decision-making. But the Bible tells us that the place that great decisions come out of, the place that great decisions flow from, that, 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 that are going to lead us to the destinations that God desires, is in God's will. We've been talking all about that. We said that it, according to the Bible, if you want to make great decisions, it all begins in knowing and following God's will. That is the place great decisions come from. 
And that's what we've sort of discovered so far. So let me just tell you that if you're like, what exactly is God's will? I'm not even really sure what that means. I would really, really encourage you to go back and listen to the past two weeks of this sermon series. We've done nothing in the past two weeks but tried to define what is God's will exactly. How are we to kind of understand it, and how do we know it, and how do we follow it? That's what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. And you guys need to know this series, this series is just one big conversation. And so if you missed the first couple of weeks, that's kind of the first part of the conversation. And so we'd encourage you to go back. You can listen to that on the podcast or on our website. All of that is for free, and it is for you. But to kind of summarize what we've covered so far, we basically said it's all about God's will. What is God's will? We said God's will, some of you may have heard of that term before. It is a biblical term, but in layman's terms, here's what it means. God's will is basically God's plan or God's desires. That's what it is. God's plan or God's desire. We said in the Bible... When the Bible speaks about God's will, there are two aspects that it is referring to. The first aspect, again, just as a review, some of you might remember this, is we said the first aspect of God's will is God's sovereign will, something the Bible teaches called God's sovereign will. And simply put, that's this. God's sovereign will is God's complete control and authority over all things. We said the word sovereign literally just means all power and all authority. And the Bible teaches us that God has a sovereign will. That is that Nothing happens in this life that is outside of the control of God. Nothing. Nothing, neither good nor bad nor evil nor whatever. Nothing that happens in this life happens outside of God's sovereign will. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says it this way. It says that everything, everything works into conformity to the purposes of God's will. And that's just teaching. That's just teaching that God has an ultimate plan for everything. And he has a destination that he is taking human history. And there is nothing that we can do to stop that. There is nothing we can do to throw a monkey wrench into the plans of God. And so for the sake of our conversation, not to belabor an illustration, but we said for the sake of our conversation, you can think about the walls of this room kind of as God's sovereign will, right? All of us are in it. And, and that's kind of the idea of God's sovereign will. Every, whether you want to be or not, we're all in this room together. And that's like God's sovereign will. Whether you want to be in it or not, whether you... Whether you worship God or you don't, the Bible says, listen, everything works together in conformity to God's will. So that's one aspect. But there's another aspect of God's will. And we said when the Bible speaks about God's will, it's also referring to God's moral will, which is sometimes called God's moral will. And God's moral will, simply put, if we were to define it, it's basically this. It's God's commandments, God's precepts for our lives. It is the way that God wants us to live. So if you think about the commandments in the Bible, you think about the precepts that are outlined for us in the Bible, that's God's moral will. And the way we illustrated that, that again, not to belabor the illustration, but we said the best way to illustrate that is if God's sovereign will represents this, is, is represented by this room, God's moral will could be represented by this oversized hula hoop, right? And we said this is God's moral will. It's actually kind of funny. Last week, this was in the cafe for some reason. And I was like, man, God's moral will is outside of God's sovereign will. That can't happen. And I thought it was funny. It's kind of a Bible joke. You guys are like, you're such a nerd. And, uh, but this, is, this is represents God's moral will. And, and of course, the, the parameters of this, um, basically, that's God's commandments. And so the Bible says what? The Bible says we should love our neighbors. The Bible says we should love our enemies. The Bible says we should forgive. The Bible says we should be thankful. Those are all commandments that God gives in Scripture. The Bible says don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't avoid sexual immorality. Okay? And what is that? Those are the commandments. Those are the precepts that God gives us. Those are the parameters of God's moral will. Now, we said this. We said the big difference between God's sovereign will and God's moral will is that it is impossible to break God's sovereign will. Impossible. 
There's nothing we can do to break it. But we said it's very different with God's moral will. It is entirely possible, in fact, all of us have done this, it is entirely possible for us to step outside of God's moral will, to break his moral will for us. And so we talked about that. And here's what we said. Here's what we concluded. We said that according to the Bible, the place of making great decisions is in here. That if you make this your primary focus, to live in this, in this, to live in this sphere, then you can make decisions freely and you can make decisions easily and know that you are in the place that God wants you to be. In fact, we even said, some of you might remember this, we said that the teaching that God has a specific personal will for your life, like who you're going to marry, like the one, or like the house you're going to buy, or the car you should drive, or what university you should go to if you're trying to figure out what college you go to. We said the teaching that God has a specific personal will for your life that you are responsible to find and follow is false. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not tell you that it is your obligation to somehow figure out what God's will is for your future. That is not. The Bible says this is God's will, is that we concern ourselves with living right here. This is the place that great decisions come. The safest place you can be is in this circle. And listen, none of us do this perfectly. None of us. But the, the, the heart is that we do this increasingly, that we live in here. We make decisions. This is the place that great decisions come from. Now, I know the past couple of weeks that we've been talking a lot of theology, we've been talking a lot of mechanics and defining terms and those type of things. And so today what I want to do is I actually want to, instead, I just want to give us an example, okay? And I want to tell you a story. I want to show you a story in the Bible that's going to help us understand how God's sovereign will and how God's moral will work together. So practically speaking, how does that all play out? If you've been here for the past couple of weeks, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, got a lot of questions, got a lot of thought. How do God's sovereign will and his moral will work together? At first glance, they almost seem like they're contradictory almost. And so how do those two things work together? And so today, my hope is that you'll be able to see with more clarity how those two things work together. And I believe it will empower us to make great decisions. So we're going to look at a great story in the Bible. The account that we're going to find is in Genesis 39. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 39. So go ahead, grab your Bibles and get there with me if you would. Genesis 39. If you did not bring a Bible, not a problem. We should have some Bibles for you under those chairs. You can turn to page 29 in those Bibles, and uh, that's where you're going to find Genesis chapter 39, page 29, okay? Also, let me just say that if you flat out don't own a Bible, and uh, you would like one, you can just take one of ours, make it a gift from us to you. Sorry, I'm chuckling. This last week, someone was making fun of me, and they said, dude, did you know every time, you know, because every week I say, if you don't have a Bible, take a Bible. He, says, he said, did you know every time you say that, you say, if you flat out don't own a Bible, take one of ours. And he's like, what does that even mean? And I was like, you know, I guess I've never really thought about it. I don't even really know what flat out means. So, so anyway, if you flat out don't have a Bible, just take, flat out, have one of ours. Just flat out, right? Flat out, just take one. So, I don't know, it struck me as funny. Okay, so Genesis chapter 39, page 29. Now, what we're going to find in Genesis chapter 39 is that we are smack dab in the middle of one of the most famous Bible stories, beautiful story that's been preserved for us in the Bible, the story of a guy named Joseph. 
Some of you are familiar with this story. It's a very famous story. And just to be clear, the Joseph we're going to read about here, this is not the Joseph of the New Testament. Okay, So this isn't the Marian Joseph Joseph, the Joseph of the Nativity scene. That's not him. This is the Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. All right, So if you've seen the play or if you've seen the musical, that's, that's this Joseph. And uh, this story, like I said, is unbelievable. It actually spans from Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50. And so obviously, for time's sake, we won't be able to read the whole story today. Um, but I'd encourage you to read it. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to kind of summarize parts of the story. But I want to key in on certain aspects for the sake of our conversation. So like I said, this story starts in Genesis 37. And uh, I know you're in Genesis chapter 39 right now. But let me just summarize Genesis 37, kind of how the story begins. So at the very beginning, when we meet Joseph, the Bible tells us that when we meet him, he's a young man. Uh, Joseph is 17 years old when we first get introduced to him. Very quickly, the Bible establishes for us that Joseph comes from an extremely dysfunctional family. And so we see that in Joseph's story. The Bible tells us that Joseph is the youngest of 12 brothers. And you come to learn that Joseph comes from a very mixed family. So Joseph, at this point, he had no full-blooded brothers. They were all half-brothers. All of his brothers were from different mothers. So he had brothers from other mothers. That was kind of Joseph's story. So a mixed family. Um, Weird family dynamics that way. Um, In addition to that, we're also told that one of the things that made Joseph's home life so complicated was that Joseph was the favorite, that his father loved him more than he loved his other boys. And here's the crazy thing. Joseph's father didn't try to hide that fact. Uh, He was very overt about about doting on Joseph, about elevating Joseph, about letting it be known that Joseph was his favorite, even though he was the youngest. And that showed up in a lot of different ways. Uh, One of the ways it showed up was that Joseph's father made for him a richly ornamented robe, or as in the 1970s they called it, a technicolor dream coat. And And he gave him this incredible robe, and it was not only a symbol of his favoritism, but it also was a symbol of authority. Joseph's father gave Joseph, the youngest boy, authority over his older brothers. So you guys can imagine, right? Joseph is, he's he's like, you know, teacher's pet. Daddy loves him most. And he's been given authority over them. They did not like him very much. They did not like, in fact, they hated Joseph. To make matters even worse than that, the Bible gives us indication that Joseph was kind of a know-it-all. In fact, when we first meet Joseph, do you know what he's doing? He's tattling on his brothers. That's the first time we meet Joseph. He is ratting his brothers out. The Bible says he gives a bad account about his brothers to his dad. He's like, I'm telling, I'm telling dad, I'm telling dad. So not a great start for Joseph. Then to make matters worse, Joseph starts having these dreams. And in these dreams, he is elevated and all of his brothers and his family are bowing down and worshiping him. And so Joseph, not having a whole bunch of common sense, thinks it'd be a good idea for him to tell his brothers about the dreams he's been having. So he does that, and you can imagine it just fuels the hatred, fuels the hatred, so much so that by the time you get to the end of Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers hate him so much that they want to kill him. And actually, it's crazy because they actually find themselves in a situation one day where that very opportunity presents itself. And the Bible says that one day they're out in a field and they're tending the sheep and and Joseph comes to them and daddy is not around. And so they make a plot. They're like, we're going to kill Joseph. And the Bible says they take him, they take off his robe and they throw him into an empty cistern, which would be like a giant pit. And they intended to leave him there for dead. I mean, you think your family's dysfunctional. Man, this is crazy. They, 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 They wanted to kill him and they threw him into this pit. And then at the last minute, 
they decided that rather than killing him, instead they would sell him into slavery. And so by the end of chapter 37, we see that Joseph's brothers have sold Joseph into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. They went back to their father and they lied to their father and they said, listen, your son Joseph, the one that you love the most, he's been killed by a wild animal. In fact, we have his robe to prove it and it was covered in blood and they showed it and they set it all up in such a way. Now listen, here's the thing. When you read the story of Joseph, and some of you guys are familiar with this, when you get to the end of chapter 37, it leaves you as the reader, or at least in this case, you as the hearer. It leaves you and I in a place where we look at that and say to ourselves, how could God let something that terrible happen? I mean, there are is, there is so many bad things that are happening in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, people are breaking commandments left and right, right? Joseph's brothers, Joseph's father, all breaking God's moral will. They are all outside of this circle, right? They are all in some way doing these terrible things to Joseph. And by the end of Genesis chapter 37, things are so bad that we're left wondering, where is God in all this? Where is God? How could God let all of these terrible things happen to Joseph, and let me just pause there for a second and just let me just highlight in your story for a minute. Because some of you, part of your story right now, when you look back at your past and you look back at the things that have happened to you, maybe that's part of your story. There have been things that have been done to you. There has been injustice that has been dealt to you. There have been family members who have hurt you, who have betrayed you. Maybe for you, you grew up in incredible dysfunction in your family, and you're left wondering, man, how could God allow these things to happen? How could this be part of God's plan? And you're left scratching your head because it seems like God is absent. And let me just say that if you feel that way, that's probably how Joseph felt at the end of Genesis chapter 37. Things ended badly by the end. But you guys know the story. You guys know the story, right? Because this story goes from bad uh, to worse. It gets worse for Joseph. Some of you guys know how it goes. Joseph gets sold into slavery. He moves down to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he ends up getting sold into the house of a man named Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar was a high-ranking official in Egypt. He was basically a wealthy man. And the Bible says that Joseph was hired as a slave into his household. And so when Joseph gets there, and he's a slave now, he's been sold by his brothers, cruel injustice. He's been sold by his brothers. He's a slave in this house. Guess what Joseph does when he gets to this house? Guess what he does? It's incredible. Joseph begins to work diligently, honestly, with integrity, as unto God. He starts, to, he starts to serve the very best that he knows how in such a way that the Bible says God's hand was on Joseph and he began to excel. So much so that Potiphar began to notice that this guy, Joseph, had some skills. And so by the time Potiphar sees Joseph and he realizes, man, this guy works hard, this guy works honest, this guy has skill, this guy excels, the Bible says that Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of all of the affairs of his household. And this is where I want to pick it up. So if you've got your Bibles, let's take a look together at verse 6. Notice what it says. Check this out. It says, so Potiphar, that's this, that's this Egyptian official, says he left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. Okay, so let's just pause there. So again, Joseph starts working hard and honest with integrity, with diligence. And the Bible says that he begins to excel. And when that happens, Potiphar sees him and he says, you know what, this guy is so talented. This guy is so gifted. This guy is such a good worker. He says, I'm going to put him in charge of my entire household, which by the way, back in this time, that would have been like putting someone in charge of a small business. There's a ton of things that happened in a household, kind of the household affairs. So he says, I want to put Joseph in charge. And for a moment, for just a moment, 
it almost looks like things are starting to go good for Joseph. But you guys know how the story goes. Because Potiphar's got this wife, right? You guys know Potiphar's wife? She's kind of got this crazy, desperate household, desperate housewife thing going on. You guys might remember this. And basically, she starts to become infatuated with Joseph. She starts to see him, and she becomes infatuated. And one of the reasons we're told, look at the second part of verse 6, it tells us, it says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Joseph was well-built and handsome. Small little detail there. I actually um, looked that up in the Hebrew language, by the way, pulled it back in the Hebrew, and what that literally means, it means dude's a stud, right? That's what it means <laughs> literally in Hebrew, right? Just think of DJ, who was here a second ago. That's him, right? Well-built handsome. And, and so, so dude's just a stud muffin. That's kind of what he's got going on. And the Bible tells us that. Now, it's not really true what I said about the Hebrew thing, but he, he's just a stud, right? So then check this out. The Bible says that she starts noticing him. She notices that he starts getting elevated in authority and in power. And then watch this. Verse 7, after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph, and she said, come to bed with me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how she really said it, but there's an exclamation point there. So I'm going to emphasize that. I don't know why. This week when I was studying this, though, you know what picture came to my mind when I was thinking of Potiphar's wife? This might sound so bad. But I kept thinking of Miss Piggy. I don't know why. You know, they're kind of that, like, aggressive, assertive, like, come to bed with me, you know, Kermy, that kind of thing. <laughs> It's not, the, it's not accurate, but that's maybe... All right, so anyway. So and the Bible tells us that she started, to, she started to try to seduce Joseph. She'd get him alone. She'd make these advancement towards Joseph. And man, the, the Bible tells us, by the way, just, just so you know, this wasn't just a one-time thing. This wasn't one time. This was every day. She tried to get Joseph alone. She tried to seduce him. She would try to lure him in to, to go to bed with him. And listen, I love, love Joseph's response. I want you to look at it because we need a key in here. This is so significant. Look at verse, look at verse eight. But Joseph refused. With me in charge, he told her, "My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife." Okay, so let me just pause there and summarize what he just said. Okay, this is really important. So he says to her, "She's like, come to bed with me." You know, and he says. I can't, I refuse. He said, listen, your husband, my boss, he has put me in charge of everything in this house. There's nothing that I, I am not under the control over except for you. And he says, because you are his wife. And he says, I can't do that to Potiphar. I can't do that to, I mean, integrity, right? That's integrity. No one would have known. He could have got away with it. But he's like, no, I can't do that to Potiphar. I can't do that to him. But then, but then, and this is so awesome. Watch what he says in the second part. This is it right here. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Then it says this, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, she just came at him. He refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. How awesome is that? He's like, I refuse to go to bed with you. I can't do that to Potiphar. And he says, and even more importantly, I can't do that to God. I'm not going to do that to God. And he says, and then the Bible says, so he refused to go to bed with her. But not only that, he refused to be around her. He's like, you're at that side of the house. I'm at this side of the house. Okay, you're going down that hallway. I'm walking the opposite direction. I'm going to avoid you. Why? Because he's like, I don't want to do that to God. 
Now, I want you guys to just to catch that because that phrase that he says there, I cannot do such a wicked thing to God, is so important. And the reason it's so important is because that little statement gives us a window and it allows us to peer into the places where Joseph's decisions are being made. And what is the place where Joseph's decisions are being made? I'll tell you where it is. You guys know where it is. It is all within sight of God's moral will. You hear what he said? He said, I can't do that. Because that would, be, that would make me step outside of what God wants for me. I cannot sin against what God has already said. In other words, what he says is, he says, listen, Potiphar's wife, devil woman, what you're asking me to do is you are asking me to step outside of this circle. And that is something that I am not willing to do. I have already predetermined in my heart that when there's a decision before me and there is a choice before me that I am not going to step outside of this circle. And that's the place where Joseph makes decisions out of it. And listen, can I emphasize to you enough how significant that is? Because for Joseph, for Joseph, this would have had an entire this story would have had an entirely different outcome had he decided to make decisions based off of a different criteria than God's will. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, let me just give you a couple of a couple of examples of places that Joseph did not make his decisions out of that he easily could have made his decisions out of, that oftentimes you and I make our decisions out of. Right, so let me just tell you real quick, how did Joseph not make his decision? All right, well, let me just give you a couple of things. First and foremost is this. Do you notice that when Joseph made this decision, he did not make a decision out of a reaction to his painful past? And let me just talk about that for a minute. When Joseph made this decision and said, Potiphar, I, Potiphar's wife, I refuse to do this, he, did not, he was not making a decision based as a reaction to his painful past. And you're like, what do you mean by that? Well, well, here's what I mean. How easy could it have been for Joseph in this moment to say to himself, who cares what God thinks? Who cares? How easy could it have been for Joseph to say, you know, I, I seem to remember back in Genesis chapter 37 when I was in a pit and my brothers betrayed me. And I remember when they sold me into slavery and they wanted to kill me. Didn't seem like God cared for me too much then. Seemed like he abandoned me then. So you know what? Who cares what he thinks? Who cares? Could have been so easy for him to do that. He could have easily reacted to the pain that he felt in his past. It could have been so easy for Joseph to say, well, you know what's so fascinating? Everyone else around me seems to not give a rip about obeying God. And things seem to be going just fine for them. So if you can't beat him, join him. That would have been so easy for Joseph to do. But he doesn't. And listen, let me just say something. As easy as it would have been for Joseph to react to his painful past, it is just as easy for us to do the same. Let's just get real honest here for a minute. For some of us, if you're really honest and you look at the decisions that you make, sometimes the decisions that we make are out of a place of reaction to painful circumstances and painful people things that people have done to us. And for some of us, it's things that people did to us all the way back in childhood, and we are still allowing those things to affect our decision-making. Let me just tell you, I, you probably know this, that when we make decisions based on our painful past, it hardly ever leads to anything good. See, but what can happen sometimes is this. Sometimes we can use our painful past as an excuse to justify disobedience in the present. We can say, the reason I'm out here is because that person did that to me. And if that person wouldn't have done that to me, then I wouldn't be out here. Right? For example, a person might say this. They might say, you know what? The reason I have such an unhealthy need for men in my life is because my father left me when I was a little girl. 
And I'll tell you what, if he wouldn't have left me, then I wouldn't have this void and this vacancy for affection in my heart, and I wouldn't be acting in the way that I'm acting right now. And you see, listen, listen, sometimes we find ourselves reacting out of our painful path. We're making decisions based off things that have happened to us in the past. Some of us say, man, if, I, if, if that painful thing wouldn't have happened to me, if that person wouldn't have hurt me, if they wouldn't have betrayed me, if, if I wouldn't have suffered that abuse, well, then maybe I could trust people. Then maybe I wouldn't have a problem forgiving people. And we are reacting. We are responding to things that have happened to us painfully in the past. You might say to yourself, man, well, she, she's the one who filed for the divorce. It was her idea. And so because of that, I'm going to use the kids against her. And you're like, why would you do that? Why would you? Well, if she didn't do that, then I wouldn't be doing this. Listen, for some of us, if we're real honest, some of the decisions that we make are, are, are basically a reaction to the hurtful decisions that others have made to us. And listen, Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph could have easily have done that, but he does not. And let me just, let me just tell you, by the way, that if you're a person that's in that place right now, I do not want to for a second act like or minimize the pain that you may have encountered in your past. I don't know the pain you went through. And the abuse may have been real and the pain may have been real. And I am not trying to minimize that. But let me just say that if you live your life as a reaction to the painful things that others have done to you, it is a dead-end road. It is a dead-end road. And And as long as you're reacting to the painful events and the painful people in your life, they have power over you. They have Listen, your pain, you're allowing your pain to have more power than your God. Joseph doesn't do that. He could have easily said, well, you know, my brother sold me, they hated me, God wasn't for me, so forget God. But that's not what he says. He says, no, I can't do that to God. I can't. And so one way he doesn't make decisions, he doesn't react to his painful past. Here's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. Notice he doesn't react to persuasive people. Joseph doesn't react to persuasive people. How easy could it have been for Joseph just to give in to the seduction of Potiphar's wife, to acquiesce to her attempts to try to seduce him? It would have been so easy. It would have been the most natural thing in the world for him to do that. And look, in the same way, for some of us, the way that we make decisions, if we're real, real honest, is some of the decisions that we make are because of persuasive people. It's because there's expectations that are put on us, and we, we're, we're afraid that if we don't meet those expectations, that we're going to somehow displease somebody. And so there's pressure that's put on That could come in a million different ways. For some of you, maybe it's a friend group that's trying to pressure you into making decisions that you don't feel super comfortable making, to do things that you don't value or that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't do on your own. Listen, that is real. It's a real thing. Persuasive people. For some of you, it's coworkers who value things that are different than you, and you find yourself making decisions based on wanting to try to please a certain audience, right? For some of us, maybe it's the expectations of family members. There's these expectations. Listen, the expectations, the pressures of the culture that we live in, we live in a very persuasive culture, a culture that that has convinced us that the key to fulfillment and happiness in this life is the accumulation of more stuff, and we buy it. We buy into it. How easy could it have been for Joseph to simply ask, acquiesce to the, the pressures of other people, persuasive people in his life. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he says, no, I can't do this thing to God. He responds to the will of God. And so listen, he could have, he could have reacted to pain, his painful past, could have reacted to persuasive people. Here's one more. Uh, he could have reacted to present pressures. Could have, could have reacted to present pressures. What do I mean? He could have just went with the heat of the moment. 
look, we're all adults in this room. I, I don't think it, it takes much to convince you that for Joseph to say no to Potiphar's wife in this situation probably wasn't the easiest thing in the world. Okay? He's a young guy. He's a young man. He's handsome. He's well-built. Right? He's in his sexual prime. And my guess is, by the way, that when the Bible tells us that Joseph tried to avoid Potiphar's wife, it wasn't because he was repulsed by her. I don't think that's what it was. I think it's because he knew that if he was around her, he would be tempted to give in to her seduction. And so he said, I need to stay away from you because I don't want to do this to God, right? How easy would it have been for this young man to listen to his sex drive? How easy would it have been for him to listen to his libido? Would have been the most natural thing in the world, right? And look, in the same way, for some of us, when we make decisions, the way that we tend to do that is we tend to make them by present pressures, the pressures of the moment, impulses, how I feel at the time, right? You guys know there's a, there's a bunch of emphasis right now in our culture that's put on this idea of following your heart, man. Follow your heart. You do whatever feels good. Whatever feels good for you is, is right for you. Whatever feels good for me is what's right for me. And whatever feels good, that's the way we determine reality. That's the way we make decisions. And listen, my guess is it takes very, very little logic on our part to realize that is a bad plan. That's a bad plan, right? To just listen to my impulses, to just go with whatever feels right in the moment. Listen, to make decisions on impulse, financial impulse, sexual impulse, in the heat of the moment, those type of decisions, they will please you for a moment and they will shame you for a lifetime. And, and I think all of us know that. And so Joseph, listen, Joseph shows us a different way. He doesn't make decisions out of the place of his painful past. He's not reacting to that. He's not reacting to, the, to, to persuasive people. He's not reacting to, to, to the, just the pressure of the present. What's he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's responding to the will of God. That's what he's doing. And I'm sorry, by the way, I ran out of peas, if you couldn't tell there, so my alliteration ended there. But, uh, but he's responding to the will of God. This is where he's living. It's like, I, I cannot step outside. You're asking me to step outside of the circle, and that is something I'm not willing to do. Yeah, but Joseph, didn't your brothers betray you? Didn't they hurt you? Where was God then? Yeah, I know, the pain is real, but I'm not going to step outside of the circle. Yeah, yeah, but Joseph, but Joseph, seriously, she's seducing you. How easy would it be just to acquiesce to the pressures of Potiphar's wife? Yeah, I know, I know, but I'm not willing to step outside of this circle. Yeah, but Joseph, just think about it. You're a young guy. How easy could it be for you just to, to follow the impulse of the moment? I'm not willing to do that. And everything else, everything else gets pushed to the side. Joseph says, this is the place. This is the place I'm making decisions out of. Now listen, I believe that would empower Joseph to do this was not just a surrendering to God's moral will, but I believe there was something else going on in Joseph's mind, and I think it was that he had a deep trust, not only of God's moral will, but of God's sovereign will, that God was working something, God was doing something. In fact, I believe that so strongly, I want to show you a passage that I think reveals that to us. Take your Bibles if you got them. Again, just flip over a couple pages to Genesis 45. Okay, Genesis 45, and I want to show you how this story starts to climax, because this is incredible, what happens in Genesis 45. Now, what happens basically between Genesis 39 and 45, some of you might remember if you've heard the story. Basically, Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, not going to do it. I refuse to step outside of the circle. I will not go to bed with you. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. And the, the Bible says that things for Joseph don't get immediately better. They get immediately worse. And so what happens is Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph she tells her husband that Joseph tried to force, force himself on her. 
And so as a result of that, the Bible says that he gets arrested and uh, Potiphar throws him in prison. So now Joseph's in prison. This is what you get for obeying God. The dude's in prison now. Now let me just say real quick, because uh, I think there's an important point there. When you start obeying God's moral will, things don't always get immediately better. Sometimes things get immediately worse. And I think I need to be honest about that because I've talked to some people and they've told me, they said, you know, I've tried the whole God thing. I tried the whole Jesus thing. It didn't really work for me. And I think what they mean by that is this. I think they mean I tried to follow God for a week and things didn't get immediately better for me and so I quit. Listen, I'm just telling you, man, I'm just telling you, things might not get immediately better. They didn't for Joseph. Joseph was obedient to God and his moral will and he goes to prison. Things might not get immediately better. They might get immediately worse. But listen, ultimately, they're going to lead to the destination that God desires. So the Bible says Joseph goes to prison. Guess what happens to him when he's in prison? Guess what he starts doing? Can you guess? Can you guess? He starts working diligently, honestly, with integrity as unto the Lord. And the Bible says that God's favor is on him, and ultimately he, gets, he actually gets elevated to a position where the, official, uh, the, the, the prison official, the prison officer, puts Joseph in charge of the prison. Now, who does that? Who puts a prisoner in charge of the prison? But that's what he does. He's like, this guy is so awesome. We're going to put him in charge of the entire prison. And so for years, Joseph is in prison. And then through a really crazy situation, Joseph meets a couple inmates, and he actually gets introduced to Pharaoh. Some of you guys know Pharaoh was the leader of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And Joseph meets Pharaoh, and the Bible says that Pharaoh is impressed with Joseph. He can see that he is talented, and he is skilled, and he can see that God's hand is on him. And the Bible says that Pharaoh takes Joseph out of prison, and he elevates him to become the second most powerful person in the Egyptian kingdom. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 45, Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt second most powerful person in the known world at that time. And the Bible says that Pharaoh trusted Joseph so much that he put him in charge of everything. And so uh, through Joseph's administrative skills and through God's hand on him, the Bible says that Joseph was able to save Egypt from a seven-year famine. And during that famine, the other nations were running out of food and they would have to come to Egypt to get food. And the Bible tells us that one day, some of the people who come to get food from Egypt are Joseph's brothers. And check this out. In chapter 45, what we're going to find is this, that now 20 years later, 20 years after Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery, we now find that Joseph is being reunited with his brothers for the first time. And when Joseph's brothers see Joseph, they don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. The reason they probably don't recognize Joseph is because, first off, it's 20 years later, and secondly, because they probably didn't expect him to be like, you know, the most powerful person in the world, but he was. And so listen, now Joseph, now Joseph has them right where he wants them. He can do whatever he wants to his brothers who hated him and sold him. But watch what he does. You guys, this passage we're going to look at, man, it is so powerful. I just have to let you know, I remember when I first studied this passage when I was 18 years old. We're going to look, just look at a few verses. The verses that I, that, are, that I found in here were so significant to me that they, they seriously, they changed my life. They absolutely changed my perspective, and they're so powerful because they help me understand how God's sovereign will and how God's moral will work together, all right? And so my hope is that maybe it'll change your perspective too. So check this out. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. 
and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. All right, so let's just pause there. So, so Joseph is seeing his brothers. They don't recognize him. And the Bible actually tells us that on multiple occasions, Joseph has to leave the room because he is so filled with emotion. And in this case, the Bible says he sends everyone away and he weeps so loudly that the whole palace can hear him weeping. This is that embarrassing cry when you're sobbing and you just don't have control over yourself. He is just weeping. Then watch this, verse 3. And then Joseph said to his brothers, he said, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Like, yeah, right? That makes a lot of sense. No doubt, they would have been terrified. This is the brother they sold into slavery 20 years ago. And watch this, this is so powerful. Verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me, which they were probably scared to death about that. Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Listen to this. The one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in this land. And for the next five years, there's going to be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me the father to Pharaoh, lord of the entire household and ruler over all of Egypt. I just want you to pause for a minute. If you have a pen... I want you to look at verse 4 to verse 8, and I just want you to circle or underline how many times Joseph says the word sold and how many times Joseph says the word sent. You notice this? He says, you sold me. You sold me. You guys sold me into, into slavery, but God was sending me. God sent me. God sent me. And I, want you, I just want you to understand something for a second. Joseph has just done some math there. That is so important. I believe that is math that you and I have to do about his pain and about his past and about his God. And here's the math that he did. He said, listen, you sold me. You sold, he's not, he's not minimizing. He's not trivializing the pain that he went through. He's not ignoring it, right? Joseph is not just some rainbow puking unicorn who's just like, everything is great. I love you guys. It really wasn't that bad. That's not what he says. He's like, no, you sold me. That was not cool. I'm your brother, and you, you wanted to kill me, and you sold me. The evil was real. The injustice that was dealt to me is real. He says, you sold me. But then he says, but listen, don't be mad. Don't be angry. Why? Because God was sending me. You sold, but God sent. What he's saying is this. He's saying, what you intended for harm, God used that for good. And so I'm not too mad at you. Why? why? Because you're not that big of a deal. Honestly, you were were selling, but God was sending. In other words, the thing that you designed for my disaster was the very thing that God used to exalt me and promote me to the places. What is it that enabled Joseph to forgive his brothers? What is it that enabled Joseph to release bitterness and to let all of that go? I'll tell you what it was. It was because Joseph was more focused on the, the sending than he was on the selling. Look, for, for some of us, for some of us, you might, you might be in a situation right now where you have a hard time forgiving. You have bitterness, you have resentment against other people. And maybe, maybe here's the thing, maybe you need to focus more on the sending than on the selling. Yeah, they sold you. Yeah, they hurt you. 
Yeah, the pain was real. We're not trying to minimize that. But listen, tune into God's sovereign will. There is nothing that anyone can do that can thwart his plans and his purposes for us. So Joseph says, yeah, you sold me. But man, God was sending me. God, I'm not mad at you. I'm not even mad at you. Because what you intended for harm, God intended for good. I love the way that uh, one commentator puts it. John H. Walton said it this way. He said, the depths of God's sovereignty are not demonstrated by his repression of our choices that inevitably reveal our sinfulness and fallen self-will, but by the fact that there is no choice that we can make, however sinful or fallen, that that can interfere with his plan. In fact, often enough, as is the case of Joseph, that those choices end up furthering his plan. You see what he's saying? He's saying this. Listen, there's nothing. Nothing, nothing we can do. Not any decision we can make. No pain that you've endured. Nothing that's happened to you that is outside of God's sovereign will. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are in this circle. Listen, here's the crazy thing about this story. I think this is both thrilling and terrifying at the same time. Are you ready for it? Both thrilling and terrifying. The truth is, God's going to use every single one of us one way or the other. In this story, when you, look at this, when you look at this story, you see some people, like Joseph, who are committed to being in here. And you see other people, like Joseph's brothers and Potiphar's wife, who are out here. But listen, did God use everyone in this story? Oh yeah. God used everybody. One way or the other, he used them all. Did God use Joseph's brothers? Joseph's brothers were clearly outside of God's will. Right? Clearly. Right? The Bible tells us that we should love our brothers, not sell them. And so clearly, they're breaking God's commandments. But does God use them? Oh, yeah. yeah. See, if Joseph's brothers wouldn't have sold him into slavery, he would have never got to Potiphar's house. And if he would have never got to Potiphar's house, he would have never made it to jail. And if he would have never made it to jail, he would have never made it to Pharaoh. Right? What about Potiphar's wife? Did God use Potiphar's wife? Clearly, she was breaking God's commandments. She was outside of God's moral will, right? She, she was trying to seduce him into sexual immorality. But did God use her? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, he used her, right? Because if she would not have done that, if she would not have lied about Joseph, he wouldn't have went to prison. If he went to prison, he would have never met those guys. He would have never went to be with Pharaoh. God used everything in this story. Did God use Joseph? Oh, yeah. God used Joseph's obedience in an amazing way. Listen, if Joseph wouldn't have worked hard and diligent as unto God, he would have never got promoted. He would have never got recognized by Potiphar's wife. If he wouldn't have refused Potiphar's wife, then that means that he would have never went to jail. And if he would have never went to jail, he would have never... God used everyone. But here's the thing. To those who stepped outside of God's moral will, God used them to their shame. There's only one thing we know about Potiphar's wife. We don't even know her name. We just know the one thing that she's known for. There's only one thing we know Joseph's brothers for, really. That's they sold their brother into slavery. But, but for those who live according to God's will in this place, it is for their good. That's why the Bible says God works all things together for the purposes of those who love him. So what do we do with a message like this? Well, let me just tell you. I'll ask the band to come up, and I just want to talk to two audiences. So the first one is this. If you're a person who is a follower of Jesus, and I know not everyone is, but if you're a person that follows Christ and you believe in him, then what that tells us is this. It tells us that the best thing we can do in this life, the best thing we can do, is we can make it our priority, we can make it our, 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 just our ambition to live in here. Now, now hear me. None of us do this perfectly. 
We don't do this perfectly, but to do it increasingly, to help each other and say, this is the safest place you can be. This is the safest place you can be. It's right inside of God's will for you. And if you're in here, you can make decisions. You can freely make choices and easily make choices, and you can be guaranteed that they're going to lead to the destination that God wants for you. Here is where we need to focus our attention, is being inside of God's moral will. And so, so for you right now, if there's places in your life that you know you're stepping outside, if there's places in your life that you're like, man, I'm drifting, I'm drifting, then how about this? Let's get back in, man. God has given us such incredible tools in community. We can confess our sins to each other. We can pray for each other. We can be healed. We can get back in here and back in the will of God. It's the safest place you can be. Listen, for those who right now maybe you're investigating Jesus, if you're a person that's not a follower of Christ, you're like, I don't even know if I believe in God. I'm still trying to figure it out. You might be asking yourself, why do I even care what God's will is? I don't even know if I believe in in God. If that's the case, let me just tell you what's behind all of this. What's behind all of this is that we believe that God is our Heavenly Father, and that He loves us and He cares for us, and that as a good parent would, God wants things for us that are better than we want for ourselves. You see, we believe honestly that what God wants for us is God wants to lead us to destinations of the fullness of life. God wants you to experience the fullness of life. And the way to do that is by surrendering our life to Him. And so if you're a person right now who has never made a decision to surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. Listen, maybe you found out already that decision-making the way you've been doing it has not been a great plan. And maybe for you, you found that your best efforts have led to only regret, have led to only pain, have led to only hard things in your life. Listen, how about this? How about you allow your Heavenly Father to dictate and give Him control of your life? He wants it loves you and he cares for you that doesn't mean things are going to immediately get better but it does mean that he's ultimately going to lead you to the places that he wants for you right so you can do that give your life to jesus there's not some magical seance or formula that you have to do you can just pray from your heart to god's heart say god i I want to follow you and i want to surrender my life you can do that we worship and we sing together let's pray Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you so much for your words to us this morning. And uh, I'm so thankful you preserved the story, the account of Joseph that you have given us as an example. It's clear, Father, that, uh, that we can trust, we can trust you. And Father, I pray that you would make it our ambition. Make it our ambition to surrender ourselves to you in your moral will, trusting that you're going to take care of everything, Father. All things work together for your purposes, and for the good of those who love you. And so, Father, I pray that you would put us in that category. The truth is, you're going to use us one way or the other to accomplish your purposes and to accomplish your plan. That might not be a popular idea, but it's just true. It's just true. We see it as in the case with Joseph. And, Father, that is all of human history. Everything is working into conformity to your will. I think of your son, Jesus. I think about what was intended for evil crucified him, they beat him, they mocked him, they they intended to kill him, but God, what they intended for evil, what we intended for evil, you intended for good, and that moment became the moment of salvation. So Father, I pray that same story will be said in our own lives. So as we go from this place, pray you would encourage us, uplift us, Father, renew inside of us a steadfast spirit to just want to be obedient to what you have for us because you love us so much. I ask you these things and surrender to